This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. We have an important topic to talk about, so important that we're breaking it up into a series. I'm talking about how child welfare agencies can effectively engage fathers and work with fatherhood organizations in their communities. So this is part one of a three-part series. I'm Tom Oates with Child Welfare Information Gateway, and I'm so glad you could join us for this conversation. It's clear how important the involvement of fathers and paternal family members are to a child's development and growth. But historically, child welfare agencies have not been as effective as they'd like to be in involving fathers in the work that they perform to ensure the permanency, safety, and well-being for the children they serve. So what we're doing here is bringing you the perspective from leaders of fatherhood organizations who work to support fathers, providing job skills, education, and parental training for fathers and family members. But these groups also advocate for their community to provide an additional perspective for child welfare professionals at all levels on engaging fathers with their casework. So we got together Pat Littlejohn, the executive director of the South Carolina Center for Fathers and Families, along with Carl Chadband. He's the chief operations officer for KISRA, the Kanawha Institute for Social Research and Action out of West Virginia, along with Joel Austin, the CEO of Daddy University, a male parenting education company based in Philadelphia. We talked about how to partner with fatherhood organizations, how to support a more father-friendly approach to child welfare, from the policy level down to the service level, uh, the value of fathers within a child's life, and how to locate and engage fathers, which is a question that many agencies find themselves asking. Now, there's a lot of passion here, and opinion as well, coming from the perspective and challenges that these groups and the fathers that they work with face. You'll also hear the commitment to working as partners with child welfare agencies. Of course, these are their opinions, and they don't necessarily reflect those of all organizations, child welfare agencies, or the Children's Bureau. So get ready for part one, and when we wrap it all up, we'll talk about what's ahead in parts two and three, along with some additional resources to help social workers connect to fathers and paternal families. So let's get to it. Pat, I'll throw the question out to you first. When you're communicating with with that child welfare worker in those agencies and really throughout the community, talk to me about the value, kind of that quote unquote return of engagement for or return of investment rather for fatherhood engagement and, and bringing in the father's side of the family. Well, I think, first of all, you know, I think every child welfare worker has the best interests of the child um, at heart. And oftentimes they're diligently working with the mother and the mother's side of the family. But when you begin to reach out and to engage the father and the father's side of the family, you just doubled the resources that are there for that child. You doubled the aunts and uncles, you doubled the grandparents, and most importantly, you bring that father in there. And so it's about doubling uh, everything that the child might need. So on that point, Carl, as well, when you're talking about like that uh, return of investment, there is all aspects that talk about bringing in that father into the family 
and even having that connection for the child welfare workers, this actually helps their overall objective. You know, as Pat talked about all the various resources that they're involved, you know, this actually leads to better outcomes, doesn't it? It does. Um, there's a, a ton of research out there. I think some of the links you may include uh, for the podcast and the billion dollar man that speak to indicators such as children not having early sexual debut, being less likely to commit suicide, being less likely to be involved in drugs, less likely to commit a crime. And, you know, the list goes on and on. But I think for child welfare workers and for nonprofit uh, practitioners and whoever uh, the other stakeholders are at the table, we have to do a better job of uh, talking to each other. A lot of times the barriers that we experience are a matter of language. Uh, so I could be saying the, the totally the right things as it relates to my manual or how I've been trained, but am I talking in a way that's edifying? You know, so I, I could be justified, but not doing something that's edifying. It's not building up uh, the other stakeholder that's at the table. So a lot of times I think we, if we could have a little bit more sugar uh, in our conversation instead of vinegar, uh, I think we would uh, see more outcomes to where children are the beneficiary of us coming together and trying partner in the community. Let me pull on that a little bit and, and ask that, you know, what is the, the better way or a different approach that you're seeing that's, that's effective in, in agencies addressing fathers, bringing the situation to the table, so to speak? And where are you seeing that that's working in a positive manner? What's, what are those tips and tools that you would give to get that to a right. level? Right. A lot of times you're seeing people, uh, if you have a credible agency like Pat's agency and she comes into your office, one of the first things she's going to do is she's going to offer you an olive branch. And she's going to say something like, how can I help you? And a lot of times we operate in silos where we don't really want to accept help. You know, we've got this caseload of, 60 to 100 to 300, depending on where you are in the nation. And a lot of times our angle at KISRA, we're simply trying to say, how is it that we can help you with the outcomes that you have for your job? And once you look at it as here's a partner, not trying to add to my caseload, but here's to try, he's, he or she is here to try and lessen my caseload or uh, provide support services, um, that is a little bit different take than this is one more hoop that I have to jump through in order to collaborate with someone else in the community. So, so Pat, when Carl refers to help, what kind of help are you able to provide? What are you offering? Well, I think a couple of things. One is, is being the person that can reach out and engage the father. I think helping to recruit and engage the father is a huge resource because, um, Typically, fathers are mistrusting of agencies, and certainly they're going to be mistrusting of an agency um, such as a, a welfare um, worker might be involved in. And so that engage of um, the father is a huge help to um, the child welfare worker. So that would be number one, the assistance in recruiting and engaging. Wow. One of the other pieces is to participate in the family group conferencing, if that is something that the agency does. Um, because I think that you also, when you have that additional staff person, that staff person might have some sk additional skills. So for example, 
we have on our team all trained um, mediators. So they might be someone who can help um, get the conversation uh, neutralized enough to so that the parents can begin talking and trying to help mediate their conversation a little bit and so that they can dial back any kind of anger or any other kinds of issues they're bringing to the table so that they can get that out of the way so they can start focusing in on the child and what the child needs. So I think the skill set that the fatherhood staff might bring in addition to what the child welfare worker might bring is another um, resource. And Joel Austin, I want to bring you also into the conversation about where agencies like yours can become a partner. And from what we've seen, from or what we heard from, from Pat and Carl, what are those assets that maybe those child welfare workers, those CPS workers don't realize that an agency like yours, like Carl's, like Pat's, can actually help them in actually you know, improving those outcomes? Off the top of my head, I have to say, um, I have to talk from where I am, which is Philadelphia. And probably just not Philadelphia, but almost all child welfare agencies don't have a really good stereotype uh, and don't have a really good image. A lot of times we work with them to because we do have a good brand and a good image. And the people that will not answer their letters will answer ours. Um, we almost bridge the relationship between um, parents involved in child welfare and the actual CPS or child welfare worker. Um, we are the, the matchmakers and the people that help understand. We do understand child welfare laws, and we do understand uh, the fears and angst of parents as well. So that we we thrive to be that middle person to bring solace to what what's best for the child. Um, on top of that, we advocate um, on behalf of parents, and then we also help parents understand the laws, like how to. It's, it's kind of hard because the system is so um, entangled right now, but how to set themselves up uh, for the best success possible. Um, we, they do, they, they are allowed to complain, they're allowed to cry, they're allowed to fight, but at the end of the day, there are some steps that need to be taken so that your child can hopefully focus on reunification. Uh, my main thing is that um, child welfare um, sometimes believes that agencies and providers are kind of beneath them and don't understand them. But in actuality, we do understand and we do know the child welfare laws and we understand family law. So to utilize us, uh, kind of like Pat said before, to help close these cases, to help reunite families and help get these things done in a quicker time frame, because these children shouldn't be left out on a limb so long. So if you've got that, if you've got that kind of connection, you mentioned they may not answer every message or or letter, but they'd answer yours. What is yes. it that the you would recommend to updating or improving the approach toward fathers and 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 the families of fathers to involve them a little bit more? What would be Joel that you'd say would be something key to help those workers improve that kind of outreach that they're trying to do? My first overall would be the education, the re-education of the important role of fathers play in children's lives. Currently, uh, males in the child welfare system, the image of them and the stereotype of them are pedophilia. 
it was very hard for you to try to take the image of a pedophile and fight for him to have custody for a child. That is one of the the other images that finance and and being able to care for families. Whereas we don't engage mothers to be able to be financially independent, but we do engage fathers to have to have a job or something. What they really have to do is to re-educate themselves on what role that they really do play. And they really do play a positive, a significantly positive role. And they can play that role with the exact same resources that we already have prepared for um, clear for foster care workers and for foster families to be able to add those things on to um, fathers. Um, it's it's a it's a top down approach and a bottom up approach about re-education. Um, the only other thing you can do is just partner more frequently um, as an agency, as a provider, as a vendor, whatever it needs to be, to partner more frequently to help get the job done. But we really all have to be on the same page. My page is reunification, and every CPS is not focused on reunification. Some are just straight foster care. Well, as you get to that point, we're, well, it looks like we're, we're pulling a little bit, um, Pat and Carl, on policy changes that you'd like to see. How, if you would implement, you know, when you take a look at a, a, an agency and you look at the policies that they are operating under, where would you like to see a little bit of influence of the father family uh, within that? You know, where can we see policy changes that you would suggest to maybe improve that ability to either connect or relate or, you know, bridge that reunification like Joel was talking about? Well, I think number one is is to adhere to their policy of a diligent search. Um, you know, we've laughed a lot of times that um, diligent search might start with uh, asking the mother, do you know where the father is? And when she says no, that's the end of a diligent search. And um, that's not, that is not a diligent search. And uh, too often times we've heard dads say that, um, when they have heard that their child has been removed from the non-custodial mother's care or that an agency is involved in, in their child, that, that when they call and they ask, I've heard, um, you know, what's happened to my child. And then they'll, you know, workers will say, well, you're not a party to this. And so we can't give you any information. Well, how is he supposed to be a party to this until you can begin to get him more involved right from the very beginning and not dismiss him when he's actually really trying to figure out what's going on? And is there something that he can do? Um, and, and first of all, he's calling because he's concerned that something's happened to his child. Is his child at first and, you know, he wants to know, is, he, is my child OK? Um, has something happened to my child? And so I think that um, being that if there's one thing that we could um, communicate that um, would be very helpful for um, child welfare workers is to respect the fathers and to not be judging of them when they call that that these guys aren't. They're calling with one thing and they want to know what's going on with my child. And I think that, you know, if we immediately dismiss dismiss them, you know, you have not adhered to what you are required to do in terms of a diligent search. And so I think that that's 
the first start. And I understand that resources of being able to locate fathers are very limited and it's intensive and it and it may take a lot of work, but that's where partnerships are really important because truth be told, that father might already be engaged in that local program. Maybe he already kind of thought something was going on. And so he might already be engaged in that local program and just reaching out to the to your local fatherhood partner saying, hey, have you ever, you know, know this guy, you know where he might be, you know, we really want to engage him in helping us to bring some, um, uh, you know, help to his child and engage him in helping us with this child. So with that, and, and Carl, let me pose this to you, you know, Pat talks about, you know, what is a real diligent search, you know, and so the questions we always kind of hear and the, the myth of, well, it's tough to track down fathers help somebody out. How do you find the fathers? Because it sounds like they're they're in the community, but maybe the searches could be done differently. I know we've talked about this off, off the air earlier, that there's just as many ways to engage the father, but are they being you know executed in, in a manner that's actually going to be effective? So fathers are everywhere. You know, fathers are in barbershops. Uh, we know that fathers are actively participating in Pop Warner football and AAU basketball and softball. We know that fathers are proud of their kids uh, academically. So it's a fallacy to think that, oh, there are just a, a bunch of men running around that have kids and no one knows who they are. So, that, you know, we can just we can uh, destroy that myth. Uh, but there there's not proper outreach. And again, it was uh, mentioned earlier, I think, by Pat when she mentioned about uh, engagement, that's where a lot of guys that they claim or some may claim are hard to find, our agencies are able to go out and easily find those individuals. So, but I did want to speak to a couple of uh, points uh, previously. One about uh, what it is that uh, child welfare may want to do and some things that uh, they, they are allowed to give pushback is if they don't feel as though agencies have the capacity or uh, the understanding of what their job entails or what are the regulations for policy, things like that. So that's why at KISRA, we actually send all of our staff through a Child Support 101 or a CPS 101 course, also a DHS or a DH, uh, DHHR 101. So whatever resources that uh, a family is gaining access to, we want them to know exactly what the policy is for their state and not just go off of uh, the myths that may be out there. Uh, also from a policy standpoint, uh, as Pat alluded to earlier, we'd like to see uh, more equal, equal access for, uh, for fathers. Uh, of course, pursuing the paternal side of the family and not just making, uh, maintaining that if you have a mother, God forbid, that uh, is a, has been abusive or is on drugs, that you keep that child on her side of the family. Well, she may have a, a, the child may have a father that's right there and capable, you know, but uh, it, it seems like it stays on the maternal side and it never gets over to the paternal side. Um, the last couple of points I'll make is some states have dad by default, and that's simply because a guy didn't respond to uh, a letter stating uh, you need to take a DNA test, and I would really like to see that investigated and judicial states like West Virginia, and then possibly doing the Mythbusters where 
you can actually say what is the policy and instead of what are the stereotypes that exist. Uh, we see a lot of guys who continuously go back to family courts and they're looking for help for somebody where they're financial, they can't visit their, uh, their child, and the person that, you know, the other parent is in contempt of court. So somehow, some way, the overall system needs to become more father friendly. That's what a lot of the practitioners we talk to around the nation say is that from the time you come into contact with a lot of their services, they are just not father friendly. What do you mean by that? What is it? Give me an example of, of what father friendly could be or where you don't see father friendly you know, um, offices or what. Absolutely. Joe, go are ahead. You, yeah. Well, first, I want to jump back to something that Pat said. She talked about um, just the role and that they are there. And and um, she also talked about just being a, what, what what do they call a diligent search? Um, if you want, if you ask me about policies that I would like to see, one of my policies I would like to see is that that diligent search has something to do with your evaluation process on whether you get to keep your job or lose your job. Um, every single one of us has some type of evaluation process, especially childcare workers as well. But there is actually no strong regulation on how that affects your job, how diligent search affects your job, how. It, it, there has to be a piece, a policy piece in there that adds an addendum to the evaluation process of a worker that says you have to have done these X, Y, and Z things that have maintained um, some type of family foundation with the father, with the paternal side as well. And there is no checkoff um, grade-wise for that for a worker currently, and I only speak for my state in Pennsylvania. Um, it is something to ask and something that they would like to have. But unfortunately, they don't, it's not forced as a part of your job to make sure that you do a great job of attachment to the paternal side and the maternal side. And until you have that policy written that is part of your job, it's never gonna, it's never gonna get better. Well, and, and I'd like to jump in and just add, too, in that if there is such a policy that says this is a part of your personnel evaluation, then it's left up to management to help put good tools and partnerships in place that would enable that. Um, because just to say um, uh, more diligent search through a more letter writing really isn't going to, you know, it really isn't going to be effective. And so I think that that's where management needs to come in to help build these bridges that allow other partner agencies to assist in, in, in locating fathers. But also, um, you know, sometimes it, there are very restrictive policies in the workplace like, well, you can't leave the office to go and, you know, build some relationships like Carl was talking about earlier at you know, at, at barbershops, right, places like that, because everybody's like, well, they're just out goofing off and they're not doing the job. But they, you know, because sometimes policies can be so restrictive that you have this mandate to do a diligent search, but yet you're confined to only one, two, or three things to do that we all know from behind a desk with a letter or an email is just not going to work. And, and, you know, to be creative in how do you maybe use some other ways like social media or outreach. But I think the number one thing 
is partnerships and having these kinds of partnerships where people see this as an additional resource to help them do their job, not to get in the way of doing their job or put more mandates on them for caseworkers who are already got heavy, heavy caseloads. So pull this for me about, you know, guys, what is effective outreach? What does that look like? What does it, you know, what does it, what does it read like? What does it sound like? What is that to where it is truly a partnership as opposed to just kind of a, a, a what people may assume or make the assumption of that it's just somebody trying to be an extra burden on the caseload or a restriction on a caseworker. How do you make that outreach more effective, part of the day-to-day work and something that can maybe ease the burden of maybe like if Pat said, if this was a mandate, how do you make that more effective in terms of, of outreach? Right, I, I think, I'm sorry. I just think that um, one of the things that I would suggest is the ability for agencies to stop being so rigid and allow their employees to flex their time. It's a it's a common sense solution. A lot of their employees go to churches. Uh, the separation of church and state, yes. But if a person can go to a church and give a quick presentation during a service, they should be able to flex their time and then collect a- applications at that same church. I mean, you have you have this great resource with these employees that work very hard with child welfare and CPS, and they see a lot of terrible things, and they hope for a lot of the best things in a society. But we have to get them out of their cubicles. For those people who like to do that, some people are just introverts. They want to stay in office, and that's fine. But there are some folks that would excel as a part of an outreach team in order to re-engage disconnected fathers. Joel, go ahead. On top of that, which I incredible information. Um, when you say outreach to me, the first thing I think about is relationship. So uh, you start to gather a relationship with some other people. Are fathers um, available? Yes, they are. There is a small percentage that are unavailable that you may not find, but I believe that you can easily find 80 to 85% of them with due diligence, um, but also with building relationships. One of the issues is that, uh, once again, for my state, is that they're not allowed to come out to where fathers are and to um, find these focus groups, find um, these fathers' clubs, find these fathers' um, these classes, all these fathers' initiatives. They don't go into them as partners and say, can you, can you help? Um, we're talking about building relationships, understanding um, the father. The other part is one of the reasons why I find a lot of social workers here don't do that is because they feel as though they're going to fail uh, with the father anyway. And one reason why they feel is they're going to fail by reattaching the father is because there's a lack of resources and services that they can get help from to help them with the father. So if you have a a child that's taken away from mother, uh, let's say from a mother, um, in in Philadelphia, there's... uh, at least a hundred different resources that you can attach the mother to, to help her get to where she can take care of her child. On the other side, there's only five or six on the male side. So the social worker has a better chance with the mom than he does, than she, he or she does with the dad. And a lot of times those, once, and we already talked about this, those places 
all they need to do is maybe change their name from WIC, which is Women, Infants, and Children, to PIC, which is Parent, Infant, and Children, and you'll be able to service both, even though they already service both. But a lot of those, they just need to collect suits, too. A lot of these people are already giving away food and cribs. They just need to be able to put the father's name on there, too. There's so many resources that we already have that they need to attach the need for a father to do as well. If you have more resources and tools um, to be able to close a case with the father, then it'll help you with that relationship to go out there and say, once I find this dad, I'm going to get him an X, Y, and Z, and this should be successful. The third part of that has to do with how he's looked at in court, uh, which and how he's looked at to the child advocates. But those aren't the people doing the outreach specifically to dads. Once you bring dad in, you have to form a relationship, which means I'm bringing you in to talk to you about a child you didn't even know about, but I have these resources here, because I know this may sound like a burden to you, but I have all of these resources to here for you, for your help, assistance with your family, um, apartment, water bill, and things of that nature. And that's when you start to have this bond of almost people calling you up saying, yes, I'm the father, and these are the things I can use if, if you want me to have this child. Are you finding, Joel, then, and, and, and also for, for Pat and Carl, are you finding that those services are limited because of awareness or they're limited because of policy? So in Pennsylvania, there is state grant, city grant, federal grant, then I'm absolutely saying that it's policy. Um, and then if it's not, then I would say it's absolutely awareness because anyone granted anything, um, specifically in Pennsylvania, should have addendum saying that you will have to serve not just mothers and not just fathers, but you actually have to serve all parents. And that's a policy for you to receive monies um, from certain agencies and certain people. You should be able to serve parents in Pennsylvania. You can't have any type of establishment where you can even eat without making sure that it's handicap ready. Those are policy things. You have to have a ramp. You have to have a certain bathroom. And those are the same kind of inclusions that you have when it comes to serving parents. When I say parents, I mean all, even caregivers. Um, as far as people that are not getting subsidized, anyway, then those are awareness issues um, that they are just not aware that there are other people that need these, have these strong needs too. And that would be my answer to that. Sure. So, Pat, let me ask you this in terms of these policies that we'd like to see improved to kind of open up the, the father and the father's family. What are you, you know, what are you seeing that that could be an opportunity to engage fathers a little bit more into into the child's life? Well, a couple of things. One is and, and sometimes, you know, there's a fine line between policy and practice. And that's one of the key things that we've made more in road zone is more around practice than policy. Um, so a couple of things. Number one, um, we've been able to partner with our um, Department of Social Services here in South Carolina. Um, that is the organization for child uh, protective services. And uh, we've been able to go and do father-friendly training in virtually every child welfare office in the state of South Carolina. And to really talk about what are barriers to father engagement? How do you work with fathers? How do you overcome those barriers? And then how can, by connecting uh, to a fatherhood program, you can bring more resources, not only to you, 
as a worker to accomplish what your goals and objectives are, but you're bringing those resources to a child. The second thing is, is that, you know, we've had our, in some of our um, Child Protective Services offices, they've had a very open policy of our staff being uh, a, a part of family group um, conferencing. Um, and then they will refer, especially if there's a, a couple that's in there together, that they'll refer that couple to our fatherhood program to do the parenting classes at the fatherhood program. So then we can pick up that father and then work with him on whatever issues he might have that he and, and get him the supports to strengthen him, um, like employment or maybe um, um some work around uh, overcoming other kinds of barriers uh, to employment. Um, but then that way, then the mother can access resources through other agencies. And so, but then sometimes too, we also have them refer fathers. If there's, you know, they are able to locate the father, they'll send the father the referral over and we'll actually help with the engagement of that father and provide those parenting classes for the father and then provide all the kinds of services that he might need to help him be in a better position to take on the responsibility of that child full time, um, whether that's getting him stable housing, um, reliable transportation, um, and then obviously employment. So I think that it's the relation and I think that it has to be um, top down as well as bottom up. I think that the management of child of the child protective services office, the management can set the tone for acceptance and the and the recognition that fathers have value in this process and that fathers are part of the family. No matter how fragile that family or broken it might be, he is a part of that family. And that there's an expectation that we're going to do everything that we can in order to make sure that this child is safe and well cared for and loved and nurtured. We're gonna do everything we can to locate and engage that father and to create an environment that's open to that. And that's not policy, that's just good common sense practice um, by putting those, you know, creating from a management standpoint, creating the kind of partnerships in the community that can help your staff meet these kinds of expectations. So that's part one of our Engaging Fathers podcast. And if there's one thing I gathered from that part of our much longer conversation, was their opinions and perspective on including the father or paternal families at all levels, such as policy to support or offer services to the paternal side of a child's family, and opening up engagement to fathers, including their desire to empower agencies and social workers to seek out and connect with either fatherhood organizations or other community groups, as Carl mentioned, where fathers can be easily located. Now, in part two, we'll talk about the ways agencies and fatherhood organizations can partner together and the elements needed to create and sustain a strong working relationship that supports the child. And in part three, we'll hear much more about an example of a strong partnership between a state agency and a local fatherhood organization happening in Spartanburg, South Carolina. We'll talk about the structure, the benefits, and the programs that the relationship has been able to implement during the past few years. 
So if you head to childwelfare.gov and search podcasts, you can find further information with this podcast, including the report that Carl mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, The $100 Billion Man, which talks about the economic impact that fathers have when involved in their children's lives. We'll also connect you to the National Responsible Fatherhood Clearinghouse, some lessons learned from a Children's Bureau-funded grant on engaging fathers, along with the Information Gateway web section on engaging fathers and paternal family members, which has reports, state examples, and other resources to help you out. As always, hey, check out Child Welfare Information Gateway at childwelfare.gov. You can connect with us with any questions on information you are looking for at info at childwelfare.gov. We've got more podcasts coming your way. Now, besides our three-part series here on Engaging Fathers, hey, check out our other podcasts on topics such as developing a parent-partner program, engaging youth in foster care, and working with the correctional system to connect and help incarcerated parents. So, hey, thank you so much for listening in. We know your time is valuable, and there's never enough of it. So we re- really, really appreciate you spending that time with us here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. My name's Tom Oates, and thanks so much for listening. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.